Mac Power Users, episode 282. Mac Power Users Live for October 3rd, 2015. Welcome back to another episode of the Mac Power Users Podcast. I'm Katie Floyd alongside David Sparks. Hey, David. Hello, Katie Floyd. Happy Saturday morning to you. It is the first Saturday of the month, which means it's time for another Mac Power Users Live episode. I always look forward to these shows. They are uh, a lot of work to prep, but I always have a lot of fun prepping these shows because we get to hear back from our listeners and there's no set agenda. We have no idea what the agenda for the show is going to be uh, until we hear back from everybody who've been writing in all month long and telling us what the agenda is going to be for this show. Yeah, we're we're making it up as we go along, except for the three-page outline. Except for, the, but isn't that what we do all along? Really just there pick it go. up as we go along. That's what mo- many there people would say about our show. Hey, we have a guest today. We do have a guest today. And the guest is a good friend of ours, um, someone who will actually have an opportunity to see uh, next month, uh, later next month. Uh, and that is our good friend and, and fellow practicing attorney, Mark Metzger. Welcome, Mark. Hi, Katie. How are you? Hi, David. Hey, Mark. We're, we're great. You know, we have had so many people write in to Mac Power users and say, why don't you ever talk about FileMaker Pro? Why don't you talk about databases? They're so powerful. How can I use them in my business? We really started getting questions about FileMaker and databases and how people can really up their game with automation after we started doing some of these Mac-based uh, business episodes. And I say my, my answer to these questions was, honestly, I don't know a thing about databases. That is above my head. But you know what? I know a guy who does some amazing things with his practice and databases that just absolutely blows my mind. Uh, and I immediately thought of you, Mark. Wow. Well, thank you. I so, love yeah. I love FileMaker Pro and I love playing with databases. Yeah, I mean, the funny thing is we've been kicking this topic around for years, but the app, the landscape has changed a few times. I mean, you know, we had Bento for a while, which was the FileMaker Pro like light version, and uh, they stopped making it. In fact, I have notes for a Bento show still for an application that has not existed now. What's it been a year or two since they since they killed it? About that, yeah. And I think one of the things reasons why uh, the show was difficult for us is uh, people are a little intimidated. I mean, um, you know, can a normal person get into a FileMaker system and make it work for them. Because one of the things I've always realized is, you know, there's FileMaker pros out there. You you can actually hire a consultant to customize your FileMaker Pro. And as soon as I hear that, it's kind of off-putting for me because I don't want to have to hire a guy. I just want to get something I can handle myself. Well, I think you can easily do uh, do your roll, roll your own solutions in FileMaker Pro. It's not that difficult of a tool to use. And David, I think you make an interesting point that the cottage industry of consultants that can customize it for you implies that it's more complicated perhaps than than it really is. But that same network of consultants theory also exists for Excel as well. Uh, You've done some beautiful things with numbers uh, and and people can do some wonderful things with Excel and they're not very difficult to do. I think FileMaker is very much uh, an analog of something like numbers or Excel as a spreadsheet. It's, It's a set of tools 
to manage information and what whatever you want to do with that information really disguise the limit with this tool, much like it is with a spreadsheet. I think, and it's, I think it's hard for people to get their heads around what a database manager is. I mean, we all know what a word processor is. We all know what text on a page is. And most people have some general familiarity with what a spreadsheet is. And so even though we may not know how to use Excel or numbers, we we kind of get the idea of what a spreadsheet is. But many people don't really know what what is a database and then why do I need one and what possible things could it do for me. So maybe that's a good place to start. Well, sure. Let, let's let's go to the analog world. I mean, I think a great example for most people to think of a database is the card catalog that people our age grew up with in school. My yeah, nobody, no nobody younger has no idea what that is. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's like saying album to your kids. You get the same sort of blank stare. Um, the card catalog is, was a paper database. If you think about the structure of the card, each card had on it the author of the book, the year it was published, the name of the publisher, the title of the book, and maybe some information about the book, subject matter, or, you know, categorical, categoricalization of what uh, category the book belonged in, and the Dewey Decimal number. So if you think of those discrete bits of information that were on every card, uh, to use database lingo, those bits of information are called fields. Um, you, you see fields when you use the the Contacts app in, in, in your Macintosh, for example, or in your iPhone. The, the little boxes that you put phone numbers into or the, the, the address or the city, state, or zip or whatever, those are just fields in a database. So on the card catalog card, you know, you've got a field for the author's name and one for the title of the book and one for the publisher and the year it was published and the, the Dewey Decimal number to pick just a few of those, those fields. Each card is one complete set of, uh, of fields. We call that in database lingo a record. So a database manager is a tool to manage the records and to store, use, and manipulate the fields of information that are contained in the entirety of the database. How's that for a overall? Okay, I guess I, I I think people who are younger may get a better idea of of using the fields and like the notes app or something like that. But I like your idea of, of making analogous to a card catalog system. I think people of our generation and older will have an idea of what that is. So, uh, but but can ahead. I interrupt there one second? I do think that there's a lot of confusion between a database and a spreadsheet. And can you go a little deeper on that and explain what the difference is between those two? Well, I think there's some overlap, and that's where some of the confusion comes from. You can do limited database functionality in a spreadsheet. You know, the, the way you would do that in the most common example would be to have each row be a record and each column would be the field. So, the, you know, box B2, for example, is a field for a first name and box C2 is a field for a last name and so forth. You could do rudimentary database work within most spreadsheets if your goal is to simply search and sort and retrieve information, a spreadsheet can do that as well. Where a database manager differs from something like a spreadsheet is in your ability to use and manipulate uh, and, and repurpose that data in all kinds of different ways. So imagine that you have a blank canvas and you can take those boxes that contain information, the field, and you can put them anywhere on this blank canvas, on this blank sheet of paper. And, and I mean literally anywhere, and you can do anything to them. You can reformat them, you can turn them upside down, backwards, turn them, you know, rotate them in space and so forth. Um, and what that allows you to do is to reuse that information in ways that you're not going to be able to get away with doing if you're trying to do that in a spreadsheet. For example, you can lift the information out of a database and drop it into 
a form letter and then generate the form letter right there on the spot. You don't have to export it out to your word processor using a mail merge process and end up with, with a document out there. You can do it in the database with one click and be done. Where that becomes powerful is your ability to use and reuse those bits of information in all kinds of different ways. I mean, I'll give you two uh, examples of, of data use and reuse. One would be uh, something I like to call string manipulation. So th think of it as mathematics involving words. You know, we're used to the fact that you can add numbers together and multiply them together and get a different result. And you do that in a spreadsheet, you can do that in a database. A database that does string manipulation will also let you concatenate or add together blocks of text to make other blocks of text out of them. So for example, you could have a first name field and a last name field, and you could uh, write a formula in yet another field that would add them together with a space in them. And then you've got that chunk of data as a separate data element that you can now do other things too. Uh, you could take a date, for example, that's expressed as two digits and a slash and two digits and a slash and two digits as a slash. And in a database, cause that to be reformatted any number of different ways using you know, taking 12 and turning it into December, for example, or reformatting it to be the third date of December 2015 instead of 12 slash 3 slash 15. Um, you can, once the data is in the system, you can manipulate the information to cause it to be formatted, displayed, um, or compared or contrasted or, or um, effectively multiplied against other pieces of data so that you can use and reuse them over and over and over again. So I, I know that, that you guys strive to not take this show too much into the realm of law, but maybe if we went through an example of what I do in the law office, that might help. Would that work? Yeah, yeah let's, let's go there. Okay. One of the things that we do is help people buy and sell homes. The process of selling a home involves creating all kinds of paper documents that have to be formatted in very precise ways, but they involve using and reusing all the same pieces of data over and over and over again, but just putting them in different places on different pieces of paper. So what we did is took FileMaker Pro, designed into the database the um, tools to collect the fields of information that we needed. And it turns out you need 42 pieces of information to do a real estate transaction that you actually have to enter. You, you need 63 to complete the transaction, but the other 21 you can generate from the first 42. For example, by adding people's names together and, and collectively calling them the grantor, that which is the legal term for the seller of a piece of property. Okay, so just for, and we're not going to go over them, but basically you need you know buyer's name, seller's name, mm -hmm. um, address, purchase price, and you know just so you, you've gone through just through doing this as many times as you have through your job, and you figured out what are those forty two pieces of information that we need. And and you've created fields for this in your database. And so when a when a new file comes into your office for a new real estate transaction, you have we somebody key in, in those forty two. That's right. Yeah, you have somebody in your office go through go through that file, identify those forty two pieces of information, and that gets inputted into your database program once. So instead of refilling those forty two pieces of information on on every piece of paper and therefore multiplying your chance of error, you've just got to get it in your database right once. Exactly can I, right. Can I just mention that you're looking for a very specific number here? And once again, it's 42. <laughs> of course it is. Of course it is. Um, is it really 42? Katie, you said that exactly that right. You, you said that exactly right. And we, we can from there generate the deed. We can generate the bill of sale. We can generate an affidavit of title. We can generate a title commitment. We can generate a closing statement. 
every document that we need to complete the transaction relies on that core set of information that was initially put into the database. Um, and and you've, you've hit on one of the really important reasons to use a database to do this rather than trying to cobble it together with a spreadsheet or a word process or cut and paste process. You eliminate all kinds of errors when you key that piece of data in once and then use that perfectly keyed piece of data over and over and over again. Yeah. And, and th- that's the big thing here. I think one of the big advantages for, for these types of programs that a lot of people out there don't realize is repeated use of specific forms. Like my day job doesn't, everything is always different and changing for me. I don't have like kind of the type of practice where I'm doing the same form over and over again. Um, but if you do, this is perfect. And and I would almost argue that this applies even more outside the law business, the I general agree. business, like sales proposals and like all sorts of things you may be doing with your customers uh, where you're generating repeated documents and you've got somebody in the office going through and doing search and replace in, in Word or pages and it's just taking forever. Um, this is this is really an opportunity for you. So tell me a little bit about the back end of, of how this works. So obviously you need a database program and then that program then plugs in to other programs that you use to generate these documents. Well, actually, most of the documents that we're generating, we're doing exclusively in FileMaker Pro. It actually has the capability of generating um, some pretty sophisticated documents all by itself. Um, we do have the ability uh, for certain types of documents, we will um, use an Apple script to send some of the data out, some of the field data over to FileMaker and merge that into a a mail merge type document. But we do that when we need to edit the final document more than we would, for example, in the course of a, a transactional document. Uh, for okay. example, if we wanted to generate a letter uh, about a transaction, we can click a button to send all the data over to, to the word processor that has the, the name, the address, the descriptors of the property, and all the particulars, maybe even core elements of the letter itself. But we know that we're going to add some text to it. It goes to the word processor, and then we type in the extra text from there. Right. So tell me a little bit about getting up and running with, with FileMaker. How, how does that process start? And then is it one size fit all or is it customizable? Well, I would say it's customizable, um, but in terms of the purchase, it's really one size fits all. To start, you simply need a copy of FileMaker Pro. It's available in both Windows and Mac versions. Um, Both are fully featured. Um, One isn't shorter on features than the other, with the exception of the fact that in Windows, you're not going to make AppleScript work. Right. Um, There is also a free iOS client, but that's really more of a tool to use an existing database. It's not a tool that was designed to make new databases. So once you've got a copy of FileMaker Pro uh, on an individual user basis, you can make full use of it. There's no limit or restriction at all. It starts to get pretty powerful in an office setting, however, because you can turn on a feature that will share that database with up to five other users in your office, which means that you're all now working together with the same file of information instead of having multiple copies of everything floating around, which also reduces errors and, and makes things simpler for everybody else. It makes it very, very easy, for example, for a person over there to type in the information and then the person down the hall to then use that, that information to produce documents or information. Um, if you, if you get bigger and more involved, you can even get up to a server version, which, uh, gives you some incredibly powerful tools to host the database in a speedy way to share it with more than five users, to share it out over the web and allow people to access it with a web browser or their iPad or whatever. Hey, Mark, if somebody's getting started in this, I know on the website, they have a FileMaker Pro 14 is the current version. Correct. And they have a standard version and, a, and an advanced version. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you know uh, any recommendations for someone getting started, what, what version they need to go in with? 
they would want to go with the standard version to start with. The the advanced version is is really no different than the standard version, except that it has some additional tools that make it much easier to develop. Uh, it's more of a developer version of the program. It adds some tools that make the development process a little bit easier when you're getting into some advanced features. But all of the things that, that we use, we use the FileMaker for multiple solutions, not just for the real estate practice. And every one of them was developed without the use of the FileMaker advanced tool. It's, it's not required. Now, do you have one database that you use? And let's just take your office, for example. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you throw everything into one database and say, okay, we're going to use one database for everything? Or do you say, you know, this is a database that we use to keep track of. We're going to put all of our, our clients that we use to create transactional documents in this database. And nope. then maybe we create another database for marketing purposes. Or is it everything goes into one and then you decide what you want to do with the information? We use an approach where it's a, a specific database set for each individual task that we want to complete or each, you know, kind of subject matter area. Now, one of the great things about FileMaker is it, it's also well integrated with itself so that if you've got data existing in a pre-existing database, you can point your, your new database to that one to extract the information that you need, either on a one-time copy over basis or on a live as the other one gets updated basis. Uh, so you have the ability to integrate separate databases, but I think probably the better solution for most people is to build a a database to to complete a specific task or set of tasks rather than trying to invent one that does everything all in one shot. And how do you go about that process of, you know, I just, I've opened it and I'm looking at a blank slate here, you know, uh, how, how do you even start to say, okay, well, this is what I want to do. I want to be able to generate documents. And I know generally these are the pieces of information that I, I have. But do you have to go out and, and pay someone who's an expert in this or, or does it have a, so at all. a wizard that you, walks you through it? Or how does someone get started with learning how to do that? Well, you, you've actually hit on the, the, the magic to really doing it well, which is to, before you turn the program on, spend some time thinking about what it is that you want to do. As with many things involving computers, and as David you know, said, for example, in your show about Scrivener, you have to begin with the end in mind first. And then once you know where you want to go, the tools will help you get there. So if you, for example, are building a, a database to manage something for your, uh, your, your wife's homeowners association, theoretically, <laughs> which is something I did for her, um, you could build a database simply knowing what output you want, what, what, paper output or screen-based output or PDF-based output do you want? And once you identify that, the list of fields, the pieces of information that you need to track will naturally come onto your, your piece of paper. Now, to directly answer your question, Katie, how, how does this work from a user perspective once you turn the program on? Um, you, you click a button to tell it you want a new database, and it, it puts up a screen that begins asking you for the fields. So you type in the names of the fields and tell it whether this is a, tracking a number or a piece of text or a block of text or even a multimedia file that you're going to incorporate or point to by reference. And once you've assembled your list of fields, it presents you with a blank screen where you can then drag the fields onto the screen in whatever configuration or layout makes sense to you for purposes of that data entry or that data output, and you're off and running. Mark, um, do you have uh, any recommended third-party sources for information if someone out there wants to get started with this? Well, the FileMaker website is a tremendous resource. There's a, a host of free tools on there, not only in, in terms of uh, webinars to talk about and screencasts and webinars both, to show people how to do different things in FileMaker Pro. The program comes with, I think, 16 templates right out of the box that will help people get up and running 
in things like uh, address books. Um, there's a basic invoicing module. Uh, there's a, there's a project management and a, a to-do list for groups and so forth. Um, but if those aren't enough for you, and by the way, one of the great things about those included ones is they're all unlocked. So you can open them up and see how they built different pieces of that, which will inform your ability to expand your own solutions as well. But on their website, you can download, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of pre-built database sets to accomplish all kinds of different things. And there's even ones you can download in a separate section that you can try out for a limited period of time or a limited feature set, then pay a fee to unlock and use. Um, That website also has a complete list of FileMaker developers and web-based FileMaker tools for folks to learn. It's, It's an entire industry unto itself. A couple that uh, thank you. Uh, a couple of questions from the chat room is: Does it use a uh, MySQL database, or how does it? It does. It does not use a MySQL database. It does use tables, much like MySQL does, but it's 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 it is its own structure. And then we've had a lot of people ask about content management systems. I know that's been an ongoing theme of the show that we'll we'll have to address at some point. Um, Could you use FileMaker to to create or manage kind of a content management system, maybe a client list or something like that? You could certainly do that. I wouldn't want somebody to try to spend the time and effort to spend uh, to make FileMaker into a a CMS, for for example, in place of a a web-based blog server, for example. I think you could do that, but it's so much easier to buy a pre-existing tool. Uh, but you could certainly do it for uh, for data management. I know lawyers that use it for document management all the time, where they'll have a database of documents that relate to a particular client that's searchable by client or document type, and then they can retrieve the the, the documents from an outside data store. So it works very well in that capacity. Yeah, I worked with a law firm once. I had a case uh, that I associated with some attorneys, and they were using FileMaker on the Mac to track uh, evidence and construction defect matters where they had, you know, tons of data and blueprints and photos, and they had a FileMaker database to manage it all. And I thought it was really done well um, in, our, in our industry, and this is kind of inside baseball, but lawyers spend like thousands and thousands of dollars on these evidence kind of management tools. And I thought it was funny that the $300 FileMaker database was mm-hmm. the best implementation I'd ever seen. There's yeah. a terrific one that you can license on the web um, uh, that, that's under $1,000, and it runs circles around the multi-thousand dollar packages that, that do evidence management in Windows. And Mark, you mentioned that your, your wife uses FileMaker for something basic, like um, for your association, your neighborhood yeah. association. Mm-hmm. Um you know, she she's the treasurer of our homeowners association. So once a year, she has to keep track of you know who's paid their assessments and who still owes them, and to bill the assessments. And so we built a database to do that. Uh, there's 185 homes in our neighborhood, and so we entered the, the names of the owner, the owners, and the address of the properties, and so forth. And from that core set of information, people's names and their their house address, meaning that the house number and the street name. Uh, we can generate the annual invoice. We can keep track of who's paid the assessments and who hasn't. And since we've got the name and address information, we also prepared two other layouts, which is a FileMaker word for just a different presentation of the same data. Um, with Literally with two clicks, we can prepare and send to the printer um, the, the annual directory. And we sort that two different ways. You can look up people's uh, names and addresses by their house number and street name or by their last name. And then it, you know, it's, it's alphabetized that way. So the directory gets printed two different ways. Again, just from having collected the data, we can manipulate it and present it in two different ways instantly. 
Awesome. Now, I do want to shift gears just a little bit, because as I, I mentioned at the beginning of this, we're actually going to be seeing you next yeah. month. David and I both will be seeing you. And that's because David and I are both going to be presenting at Milo Fest, which I know is a, a conference that you're very heavily involved with. Um, I think this year you're involved in some of the administration aspects of, of Milo Fest as well. Why don't, you, why don't you take a quick minute and tell us a little bit about, about Milo Fest? Sure. Well, you know, part of the, the name, I think, might scare some people away unnecessarily. Milo stands for Max in law offices, which relates to a a listserv that that, uh, several thousand, I think it's over 5,000 lawyers now belong to. And it's a a free resource on the web where we share information about how we are using Macintoshes in our law offices. And once a year, we get together at one of the Disney hotels in in Orlando. Uh, And this year, we'll be at the Yacht Yacht Club Resort. Yacht and Beach is all put together uh, on November 12, 13, and 14. Uh, for this year's Milo Fest, which is the gathering of the of people who, who read that list. I I think the name might be a little off-putting to people because the assumption is, well, if I'm not a lawyer, I can't get anything out of that. And the opposite is actually true. The, the conference, while many of the examples that people will give are how things are happening for them in their law office, it's really more about how to run your small business. Uh, and the, the, the offerings in terms of the presentations include not only um, – workflow examples of how people are using programs day to day in their in their offices, but um, business advice from really top notch people on how to grow a business, how to market a business, how to present that business to potential customers. Um, So we we cover everything from marketing to office practice and management and the geek stuff of how to use the technology in your office. It's it's a great, great uh, conference. I've really enjoyed, uh, well, I've attended now, this will be my seventh year. It's, the conference is seven years old. Uh, I've developed some really close friendships with, uh, with people there and I wouldn't have met them, but for, for going to this conference and, uh, it's a really well done conference with some great content. In fact, at the risk of embarrassing the two of you, I, I know that a lot of people are very excited that this year they'll get to hear both of you together. So yeah, I was going to say... We're talking and, together? Uh, <laughs> wait, that was not what I was told was in the contract. <laughs> I was told that he was going to be on a different day and would be out of the building by the time that I arrived. <laughs> yeah. He specifically asked for, for water balloons and things when you were presenting, so... Yeah. Uh, and all no, green M&Ms. Yes. Um, well, actually, David um, David and I are both going to be presenting. It's we're, we're very excited about it. And it's at Disney World, which um, I'm very thrilled to be able to show David the real Disney because um, I know that he's had that pathetic, pathetic Disneyland experience for so long. Um, oh, man, my blood is boiling right now. <laughs> um, but, uh, David, do you want to tell them what, what you're going to be presenting on? Um, I'm, I'm going to be talking about productivity, task management. I'll be doing some OmniFocus stuff. And, um, frankly, the, the whole agenda isn't settled because I have some other things I want to talk about that, uh, that the organizers don't know about yet. So I'll, I have some surprises up my sleeve. Taking it's over kind of the funny. conference. It's been going on for years and I've always wanted to go, but it's at the other side of the country. And, and back when I was at the firm, it was really hard to get time off. And I was telling my wife, I said, yeah, I think I'd really like to go to this, but, um, you know, I don't know if we can, you know, we got to afford the plane tickets to fly out there and, and, um, and the time off. And she says, wait a second, it's at Disney world. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and, uh, suddenly my wife was a big fan of Milo fest. So yeah, we're, we're actually, I'm taking the whole family. We're going to go and have a good time and, and hang out a little bit at the parks in addition to talking about law stuff. So yeah. uh, we're all looking forward to it. 
Yeah, and I'm going to be talking about um, uh, stuff that you can buy. So fun stuff. Uh, my session will be an expensive session, I expect, because I'm going to talk about all the cool stuff that uh, you can get as as add-ons to your Apple technology to to help you uh, run a more productive uh, system. So what what are the little add-ons and accessories that you need? And I don't know, David, if they're going to let you add on sessions and say additional stuff, maybe I'll have to do that too. Oh man, now I've unleashed the monster. You, you have, but uh, <laughs> but it's it's great fun. And Mark, there is still time to register, right? You can do that at m i l o f e s t dot com, milofest dot com, and I think that uh, well, Victor, who's the the conference organizer, I think will allow registrations up to the day before because that can still get him the information from Eventbrite. Yeah, and it's at the uh, it's at the Yacht Club in Orlando, Florida. Uh, it's a great place. Thankfully for me, it's just a just a short drive, so um, I'll I'll be attending as well. And uh, I look forward to seeing David and his family. Really, I'm just looking forward to seeing David's family more so than David. Actually, I'm just kidding. Um, but- David, can, what would it take for us to get you to commandeer a uh, a jungle cruise and, and do a custom one for us? Oh um, yeah. I don't know. We'd have to throw the skipper overboard or something. <laughs> I, I think there are enough of us that we could we could totally do it. But uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing David and uh, everybody at Milo Fest. It's it's one of my favorite conferences that I have an opportunity to attend every year. So if if you uh, are an attorney or you work in a law firm, law firm management or administration, and this is a, a topic that you're interested in, either you use Max or you're interested in potentially. Uh, integrating Max into your uh, law office, definitely something that you want to look at. And we'll, of course, have links to the show notes for all that. So, you well, Mark, thank you so much for joining us and telling us thank a, you both. a little bit more about FileMaker. And uh, we'll see you next month. I look forward to it. All right. Hey, thanks so much. You know, one of the things I'm looking forward to at MiloFest is that the, the attendance isn't huge, so everybody can kind of get to know each other. And I think that's going to be kind of cool. But um, anyway, um, so we're uh, before we move on, I'd like to take a minute to talk about our first sponsor today. And that's our friends over at one password. And I am so excited about the new version of one password six for iOS. You know, we just got our new version of iOS. And of course, the gang at one password has been hard at work updating their application again. It's free. You know, you get a free update so you don't have to buy it again. And it's a really nice update. When they first came out with iOS 7, uh, they the design of 1Password got really flat, like everything in iOS is going. But uh, they've added a little more whimsy and personality to this new user interface design, which I think uh, gives it a little more pop. And I, I really like it. Um, uh, but there's also some nice improvements to the application. And I've been talking for years about 1Password, how it does a great job of creating good, secure passwords for you. But for a long time, the logic was a good, secure password was something that was like 20 digits and they were random and capitalized and uncapitalized in numbers and symbols, which are really pain to, to type in. Uh, there's been a lot of, of research. Uh, Arnold Reinhold did a lot of it. He's got that website called Diceware, uh, where people have started to determine that randomly chosen real words can also be very effective, especially a long string of them like cellist, dander, signify, esteem, elver, blah, 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 blah. And that's easier for someone to remember and it's easier to type. So uh, the gang at 1Password has been watching this. They've, you know, they're very smart. They figured out that, yes, indeed, these can be secure passwords if done correctly. And they've added a wordless password generator to 1Password now. So if you want to go with the word list instead of the traditional random numbers and characters, it works really well. And, and you know, a really good use for that. I've been starting using these, Katie, for the uh, random 
uh, security questions. You know, when you get, oh, yeah, what city you... were you born in? And I'll just generate a word list and I'll just put it in there. And that way people can't social engineer around my passwords. Yeah, Goofy dander goat. Yeah, there you go. You could figure out where I was born, but you're not going to figure out kooky dander goat. I mean, that's just not going to happen. And uh, another big feature they added was it it now, you know, because with iOS 9, apps Spotlight can look inside applications. And of course, when Password was one of the first companies to jump on this. So you go in Spotlight and type in, you know, Squarespace or Amazon or whatever it is you want. And it will show you a link to the um, to the login for that that place and you tap it and then it goes to the fingerprint recognizer. So, you know, it knows it's you and it logs into the website and you can do all that from spotlight now using one password, which is really great. And then the third thing that they updated that I really like that you don't care about is my, my big ginormous iPhone. Uh, they've made it more friendly for landscape improvements. So the iPhone six plus, uh, if you've got the six plus, you're going to like the way one password looks now. Uh, they've continued to evolve the application there. You know, the the native watch app on iOS two is, is there and they've added some features to that. And, uh, you know, the gang at one password just wants to make it the best application possible. It's engineered around iOS and the Mac. So it's always going to look gorgeous and be be awesome. And they have just continue to do that. So this new update, iOS one uh, password six. Uh, works in iOS 9 and it's free. And if you're using 1Password, you probably already got the download. If not, go get it. And gang, as we're heading into the holidays, this is a good time to remind your family members they need safe and secure passwords and get them on the 1Password bandwagon too. If you do that, uh, please send them over to the website so uh, we can get credit for it. You know, they know that they found out about it from the the, uh, gang over here at Mac Power Users. Uh, The website is... Just click on the link in the show notes and it'll give you the, yeah, the, the it's, discount. It's a complicated but it's, just website. go to onepassword.com if you want to find out more. Yeah, and you can also just let them know on Twitter or wherever social media stuff you do. But but we're going to have a link in the show notes that you can find it there as well. So uh, thanks, One Password, for sponsoring the show. And, and I really uh, want to thank them for spending the time and effort to make the application even better with this new version 6. Yeah. All right, so let's do some listener questions. How about that? Yes. So let's uh, talk to Patrick. Patrick says, uh, with so much talk about the clean install of OS X every year, and he said, and this is something I do regardless of the evidence may show, he says, I still don't hear anything about iPhone clean install with each new iOS installment. He says, the reason I ask is that I just realized something on my iPhone 5S 64 gigabyte. I'm getting ready to upgrade to the 6S Plus and trying to decide 64 versus 128. I've decided to look at my storage space, and surprisingly, I have over 10 gigabytes of documents and data. And upon further investigation, it seems to be mostly in the messaging app, mainly pictures and video, and mostly data that I'd like to glance at when a friend sends it to me, but I have absolutely no need to keep it for years to come. However, it does, and it takes up a big chunk of my storage. Additionally, over the year, I've racked up plenty of apps, more than 100, most of which I don't use on a regular basis. So a clean install would really enforce me to decide whether or not I actually need to keep an app and whether it may be worth 100 megabytes or more. For example, this just all starts to add up. Would you guys ever do a show on clean install for the iPhone? And if so, what are the steps and how to do this? And, you know, I have not done a clean like setup from scratch on my iOS device for a long time because it is such a pain. 
It's not as bad as it used to be. Um, the uh, When I was going through the beta process in iOS 9, I had a point where I had to do a clean install on both of my devices. And and uh, props to you, Katie Floyd, for bringing up the idea of putting those four folders on the home screen and not having Did any you additional like screens. That? I'm sold. I'm sold. I mean, I've been doing it now since you recommended it. And I've set it up on my iPad now, too. And it's great. And uh, it works just fine with Spotlight. You can get to the apps you need quickly. And I uh, I like having it all on one screen. So so when I had to reset my phone, uh, I noticed that put I put those four folders that I was going to put at the top of the screen. Do you, you know, do you use my naming convention? Utilities, no. leisure, productivity, or information? No, no, I didn't. Like leisure was way too highbrow for me. It's called uh, fun, you know. Uh, and but the um but what I did was when I set up the new phone. I did go through the pain of going through my purchased app list and just tapping on all of the ones that I've purchased over the years that I want. And so my phone downloaded a bunch of them. So then I had like, you know, like six screens of apps installed. And then I drug the four, the four folders into the dock and I just drug it. Then I just swiped it to the side and I just drug the appropriate apps into the appropriate folders and then went back. It was a lot faster than the ways I used to do it when I had, probably like 20 different folders and it was just kind of a pain getting things in the right places. Yeah. The four folders makes it a lot easier. Yeah. The, um, uh, you know, the, the, the question really though is, does this, I did it cause I had to, um, but the question is, does this improve performance? I have talked to some people that think an occasional nuke and pave of your iOS device does improve performance. In fact, I think I had a conversation with, I don't want to put words in his mouth. I think I had a question with Federico Vitici once who says he does it actually quite often. And he thinks it does improve performance. And uh, I'll have to go look up and see if he's written on that anywhere. But the um, but there are some people that argue it does. Uh, it doesn't take that long. But I'm not sure it's, I mean, if, if you're noticing, maybe you might want to do it. But uh, I. it's also kind of feels like getting a root canal for the hell of it. I mean, it's not, if your phone's working, then why mess with things? Um, getting to his specific question, though, um, there are some tools that allow you to manage storage so you don't have 10 gigabytes of documents. Yeah, and and I honestly I try to do some of this on a on a regular basis so it doesn't doesn't get to that point. Um and iOS has gotten better about this. For example, with newer versions of iOS as it has resolved uh, evolved when people send you videos and when people send you um uh, what are those called? Those message audio messages in in the text messaging app. Those now by default will unless you unless you change your settings. Those will now go away after you've played them for a certain yeah. amount of time. Yeah. Um, but I I try to stay on top of my messages. For example, I don't keep my messages forever. I tend to go through my message history pretty regularly and delete things out. Um, I tend to, I don't think of my text messages as great archival history of things that I need to keep. And so it's not uncommon for me to go through and delete that. I mean, if there really is something in my text message history that I need to keep, I'm going to immediately make a point. If it's a photo that I want to keep, I'm going to save the photo. If it's a, a phone number or a contact or other information in that message that I'm going to keep, I'm going to make a point then and there to to save that contact information. So I just try to keep on top of things as I do it. Yeah. Another thing you can do is just like removing old apps. They, um, um, when I restored these phones, it was kind of refreshing because I didn't need to download nearly as many apps as I had previously had installed. And if you look in a folder and you see an app that you haven't launched in over a year, it's okay. You can delete it if you want. 
Although you can leave it there too. It doesn't, it doesn't do any damage sitting there. Well, it's taking up space. Yeah. Um, uh, one of the things that I, I also try to do is now that I've got those four apps, it's pretty easy just to open up a folder at a time as I've got some free time and go through that folder and say, you know, X out, mm, don't use you, don't use you, don't you, you, don't use you. But I also try to go through on, on iTunes, on the Mac and, and get rid of things that I'm not using. You know, I'll just, as I've got some time, I'll sit there and I'll just go through row by row and say, okay, uh, is there anything on this row I can get rid of? Anything on this row I can get rid of? And then delete those apps. There are also some third-party utilities like Clean My Mac that you can go through and delete apps through iTunes. But I admit, you know, you can also just do it straight I've, through iTunes I've got this well. vision of, of you sitting at your computer at like 11 at night, all the lights are out, and you're just going through deleting apps. Yeah, and sometimes I even play a game with myself. And I say, okay, this is a row of apps. I'm going to delete at least one thing from this row of apps. At least one app has got to go. Yeah. The um, Well, my, see, my, because we, up until very recently, we all had one shared account. So I've got things like Mama's Kitchen and um, Hair Salon uh, contest, you know, <laughs> Gotta there go. are so many apps in my, uh, purchased and downloaded. It's, it's nutty, but, uh, but well, Patrick, thanks for opening up this discussion. We never really had had it before. And, uh, yeah, I, oh, I one, go ahead. I was going to mention one more thing, but if you go into right. general storage, um, and iCloud, uh, settings, general storage and iCloud storage, and then manage storage, that'll also give you a good idea on the device itself of, of where you're using things. Yeah, my big violator is Keynote because I'm always giving Keynotes from my iPad. And I have, sometimes I put videos in my Keynote and sometimes they, sometimes those files get really large. And after I give a presentation or an opening statement or whatever, a lot of times I don't delete it for mm-hmm. some reason. Or uh, what one thing I like to do is I usually move it out of iCloud. Uh, well, you can uninstall it from your, your, your uh, iOS device without removing it from iCloud, but I do kind of have like cold storage for some of those things and, um, and keep them out of iCloud. But if I, if I get lazy about that, then I do fill up my device with lots of keynote files. Well, anyway, Patrick, thanks for opening this discussion. We've never had it before. So, uh, that's why we have the live show. Um, we also heard from Lionel about OmniFocus and start dates, or now they call them defer dates. And he said that I, David talks about managing by start date method for OmniFocus. And he says he tosses things he wants to do in the inbox and then assigns them to a project without knowing when he'll get around to doing them. And he says they're not wish list items. He says he needs to do them, but there's no hard due date. So, can he start him today, tomorrow, next week, and a few weeks from now without causing too much havoc? And he says if he leaves them in with no start date or due date, they clutter things up. So how do I manage it? Well, I, I give him a start date. I give him a defer date. And um, that's, you know, that's this method I use. I think the we had uh, Kurosh Dini uh, on the show recently who, who uses a different method. He doesn't use the defer date method. He, he just switches between contexts and is very selective about what he puts on the screen by selecting a specific project or a, a context. But for me, because I have way too many oars in the water, this is a good way for me to see everything in the morning. Uh, if I have a project, like I have a project I'm working on, I just picked up recently and I know um, it's, doesn't have a due date, but it's something I want to work on. And I just push it off till Wednesday this morning when I was going through my morning review. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean it'll get done Wednesday, but Wednesday I'll be in a spot where I can evaluate better 
whether I could do it then or whether I need to push it off further. And that does add a little bit of overhead because I'm going to go through and look at it again on another day. Um, but between now and Wednesday, it will not be on my list and it won't be cluttering things up. And, and that's really nice. The other recommendation I'd make is in OmniFocus, they've recently added some additional criteria for custom perspectives. And one of them is you can pick projects um, and context as a perspective. So, for instance, um, and I haven't experimented, I'm a little ahead of myself here, but I think I'm going to be able to put a grocery list in OmniFocus and yet still not see it in my today and clear views by excluding it from that perspective. So I'm going to have a post on that in the near future, but uh, OmniFocus is kind of aware of this stuff and, and the group at OmniGroup is, is constantly evolving it. Awesome. Um, we, we got some, um, we got some feedback on the word processing show and uh, we got corrected by TJ. Yeah. A big, big, big thing that we missed in, in, in our defense, this was, this was something that changed recently. Um, but you do not need a paid Office 365 account anymore to edit Office files on the iPad. Now, I think the exception to this is going to be the iPad Pro. That's a little confusing still, and iPad Pro isn't out yet, so we'll have to see. Um, you need a free account, but but here's how that works. So you can edit and view documents and spreadsheets in all of the Office apps for free, but you will need a Microsoft ID. So after you've downloaded the app, you'll see a screen asking you to log into Office 365. And if you don't have an Office 365, you can create an off a Microsoft ID and use that. Um, Microsoft does require a birth date and a telephone number, although I've heard people say that if you don't give them your real telephone number, they won't really know that. Um, and um, you'll get some marketing email, but you can always opt out of that later. And then so you can register for an account if you want to be able to edit the documents. And if all you want to be able to do is read the documents, you can just tap sign in later and you'll be able to do that for free. So that may change the uh, the game a little bit as to whether people buy a, um, uh, a subscription or the boxed copy. Yeah, I know for you, you're you're on the the fence here, maybe this is enough to push you into just buying the box copy. Yeah, it may be. I, I will be very candid. Is I need to do a little more research of can you do all of the edits you need to do for free? Or is it just basic edits that you can do for free? And if you want more advanced features, then you have to have a paid account. That's I need to dig into that a little more. And I think people should probably dig into that themselves a little more before they uh, they make the final determination. So. Um, I, w I would suggest people, you know, figure out what works best for them. But um, anyway, we've got a lot more to talk about, um, including more feedback on uh, a lot of Google related stuff um, from that feedback show. But before we do, um, why don't I take a quick minute and talk about one of our next sponsors, um, and that is the folks over at Fujitsu. And I thought a good way to, to lead into this sponsorship spot is we had a question from Jason asking us to explain our workflows and automation that we use with our ScanSnap. Um, as you know, our sponsor Fujitsu makes the ScanSnap line of scanners. And Jason says he would like the ability to be able to scan, automatically OCR a document, and have that placed in his inbox, which for him is a Dropbox folder for further processing. Um, and here's the good news for that. Um, the beauty is, is that with the ScanSnap software, you can do all of this and more. The ScanSnap software is fully customizable. 
Um, all of the scan stamps that you're going to buy come with Abby Fine Reader, which is OCR software that's included with the purchase of your scan stamp. And you can configure this scan stamp software to automatically OCR the pages of your document. You can either OCR all of the pages of your document, you can OCR only the first page of your document, or they have a really neat feature where if you highlight certain words and phrases, it will only OCR those words and phrases. And this is completely configurable within the scan snap software. Um, you can even then have the software prompt you to name the file, um, or you can just keep it with a standard naming convention based on the date and time that it was scanned in. And you can then save that output to a specific folder. Um, in this case, maybe you want that to be your inbox folder that you keep in Dropbox. David, I think you call that your actions folder that you keep in Dropbox. Uh, and then you can take over and do whatever you want from there. Um, David and I use tools like Hazel to continue the automation process. But you can then do whatever you want with that file. Um, the ScanSnap software is so configurable, you can do things like save to Dropbox, save to Evernote, save to other cloud services, scan those things uh, directly to email, uh, and you can save multiple profiles for different types of documents that maybe you want to scan. Um, the scanner of my choice is the iX500. It is a full duplex scanner uh, with a 50-sheet feeder built in. It's got USB 3.0, so you can either scan direct connected or wirelessly, either to a Mac Mac or wirelessly to an either a Mac or an iOS device. Uh, this thing screams scanning uh, 25 pages per minute, um, and it is just the best document scanner that I have ever used. It's got an advanced paper feeding system that I, I, it's very very difficult to get this thing to jam. It, it's it uses uh, separation roller technology to minimize jams uh, with multiple feeds, so those papers just glide right through. Um, and using that ScanSnap software, like we talked about. Um, you can completely customize the scanning experience and save various profiles for future use. So you can find more information about the Fujitsu line of products and let them know that we sent you by uh, supporting Mac Power users by going to the website ez.com slash SSMPU. That stands for ScanSnap MPU. Uh, and uh, Fujitsu has been a longtime supporter of the show. We want to make sure that they know that we really appreciate their support uh, and thank them for supporting uh, Mac Power users. Uh, we heard from Layton talking about um, whether to upgrade to 365 or stay with Apple iWork. Let's go ahead and play that audio. Hi there, Katie and David. Love your show and tune in every week to listen. I have a question regarding your word processor Smackdown episode number 279. I'm a big iPad user and use it for all schoolwork and assignments. I've been reading on the web that iWork for the iPad may be near its end of life and soon to be replaced by Microsoft's suite of apps. Should I consider upgrading to the paid membership of Microsoft Office 365 or wait for the eventual update for Pages and Apple's opinion on this? I don't, yeah, I've heard this going around too. Everybody's saying, well, Apple doesn't care about the iWork stuff anymore. I don't buy it. I mean, I know, for example, uh, I have some friends that were developing apps I used um, that have recently disappeared because they've been hired into the iWork team at Apple. So apparently they're still hiring people. And I, I, I realize that they don't update these things as much, but they also have a more stretched out platform list now. They've got a, well, they've got updates for iOS and for Mac. I don't think Apple's giving the, the iWork suite a lot of focus. And I don't think they have a team of 100 engineers working on it every day. But I don't think they intend to, to let it go away. And, and the speculation on that, I, it just seems kind of unfounded to me. My advice would be if you're using pages and numbers and Keynote and they're working for you, stick with it. I think you're fine. I mean, 
spending the money for office and office is no, you know, golden solution either. I mean, well, in fact, wasn't there um, talk recently that people were having problems with 2016 and El Capitan? Yeah. Are, are you well, having those issues? Well, I mean, after we recorded that show, oh, this is this is kind of kind of irony. I guess that's what you call it. After we recorded that show, um, I started working on a, a, a contract and I had like an hour and a half into it and office just crashed on me. And then this is the this is the great part. I, I said, OK, reopen. And it reopened and it had a fairly recent version on the screen and for about five seconds and then it crashed again. <laughs> I mean, That's I when you control and control C. I, I didn't have well, I should have hit command S immediately, but I didn't because I silly me sitting there for five seconds, scratching my head and, and then it crashed immediately. And then it said reopen and I reopened it and it was a blank document. And, and I, I looked, I searched online and ultimately I lost an hour and a half. And so, I mean, <laughs> there's still issues um, out there. So I'm not sure I'd want to pay to buy office. Now, you know, that being said, as I said in the show, Office has certain tools and features um, that make it necessary for some people. And I wouldn't recommend against buying it if you need it. I need it. I pay for it. Uh, but uh, if Apple, you know, the Apple iWork suite is doing it for you, uh, I wouldn't abandon it just because there's rumors that they may not continue with it. I would late. And I think you're just fine. Keep using pages um, and you'll be all right. Um, but maybe you may want to consider Google Docs because we heard a lot of feedback on Google Docs. Um, the first one was from David, and this was on the Google Plus site. I'm trying to be more active on that. Um, and uh, and David had said, hey, you know, um, his experience with Google Docs was more positive than mine. And he said that, you know, like for searching um, documents, he's, been, he's able to find it by using the Google Drive uh, site. And, you know, th- that's something I should have mentioned on the show. So the Google it used to just be Google Drive. You'd go to Google Drive and you'd find what you needed. And things were a lot easier that way. And then Google really kind of made a push to have separate sites for sheets, docs, and spreadsheets. And I went ahead and kind of went along with the new the new order of things. And when I read this this note from David, it got me thinking, well, why did I give up on Google Drive? Because it's still there. So uh, I went afterwards and I've, I've now... Um, not only have I got Google Drive saved as a favorite, now I've got it um, shrunk as, what do you call the thing in Safari now? The pin. pin. So I've pinned it. And um, like getting ready for Mac Power users and things, when I go to Google document heavy tasks now, I just tap on the pin and I'm in shape. Yeah. So he's right with that. Um, he says he can write in French with uh, French word completion and spell check. Uh, you know, he's using it as a full-fledged word processor and having no problem. And I didn't mean to imply in the show that you couldn't, but I feel like it's not as mature and the user interface experience is definitely not to the level of something like Pages. Uh, but he's right. You can completely get away with it. And several people sounded off in the Google Plus channel and that saying, oh, yeah, me too. Uh, I really like Google Drive and that's my thing now. We had Nick and and several other people write in about Google Drive for Mac, and this is the application that you can download and install, and it it basically works quite a bit like Dropbox. He says, you can use Google Drive from your finder just like Dropbox. He says, I have it installed, and they work exactly the same. I have over 15,000 files in my Google Drive. And basically what happens is you install this, and you get a little menu bar app, and then you get a folder in your, um, I don't remember if it's your documents folder, if it's your home folder, but that just has all of your, your Google Drive folders. Um, and, you know, I I at one point had this installed uh, and used it 
pretty regularly as kind of a, a quick access to my Google Drive documents. But the other thing that I would add is that the advantage of this is that um, your documents are also synced locally to the Mac, which means you also have the advantage of them being backed up when you back up your Mac. Yes. So that's a that's a good thing to have. Now, is that Google Drive app uh, published by Google? Yes, it is. It is published by Google. Now, it's a, it's, it's a Google Doc file. So, for example... You know, if you if you open something in it, it's just going to take you into a web page into the Google Doc. You know, it's not like it's converting these documents to Microsoft Word or anything like that. But if you have um, documents, and well, that's that's a bad word. Um, if if you have uh, like a PDF or a file in Google Drive, then it's going to work just like Dropbox, and it's going to give you a copy of that file. But for your Google Documents, it's just going to be like a .gdoc file is, is what it is. Yeah, and there's several um, third-party apps out in the App Store right now that uh, claim to do similar things with your Google Docs. I would steer clear of third-party apps on this because you're going to have to give them access to your Google account. I think there's some security questions and I think like with anything you're dealing with Google, I would go straight to the source. Yeah. Um, Eaton wrote in and talked about Google Docs and tracking changes and said, we, we missed one big deal when discussing track changes with this. And we both said that Google Docs doesn't really do track changes. Instead, it shows document histories. But he says, this isn't quite true. He said, you can change your writing mode from editing to suggesting. And he says, this is in the upper right corner under the comments window. And he said, then the behavior is almost exactly like track changes in Word. So I was not aware of that. I'm going to have to keep an eye out for that. I stand corrected. I went and checked that. He's absolutely correct. Correct. So you can really track changes. So another vote for Google Docs. Uh, John wrote in about Office 365 subscription restrictions. He says Office 365 home, personal and university sus- subscriptions are for non-commercial use. So people need to consider what they're using it for, not just how many devices they need it on or how many people they have in their household. If you're not working for an employer who's paying for a business subscription for you anyway, um, Here's the relevant bit from the first page of the EULA. We all love reading EULAs. Uh, the service software may not be used for commercial, nonprofit, revenue-generating activities. The business licenses are still good value, but you just don't get the massive discount for five people in one household. So, good point. We didn't talk about that. Um, let's move over to general feedback. Um, and this this looming topic of virtual assistant, I know there's something in the future for us on this, but we keep getting little um, blips on the radar here. And Wendy sent in a nice comment. Let's hear from Wendy. Hi, David and Katie. My name is Wendy and I am a virtual assistant. I am an atypical one in that I live in the United States and not the Philippines or another country where virtual assistants are commonly found. I do a variety of different tasks for my clients, including handling emails and customer service, working behind the scenes in shopping cart software, creating blog posts, scheduling email newsletters, and doing some tracking and training. Basically, my goal is to help my clients do what they love to do and to take off their plate things that they don't really enjoy that fall within my skill set. So quickly, some tools that I use in my work include Gmail and the whole suite of Google products, including Google Docs, Google Calendar, Google Drive. I use OpenOffice for anything that does not need to involve my clients directly. So that's an alternative to Microsoft. I use Photoshop and 
along with that, I use Actions and Hazel to automate a bunch of different tasks for me. I use Dropbox and DB Inbox, which is a way to receive Dropbox files from anyone, even if they don't have an account. I use MailChimp and Constant Contact and your mailing list provider for email clients. And most recently, I've begun to use Slack to collaborate with team members. I also use Freshdesk to handle customer service emails. I go into a lot more detail about each of these things in a longer recording, which I will link up to this. But those are just a few things that I do to assist my clients and make their life easier. So I hope this helps. Love the show and can't wait to hear the next one. Thanks, Wendy. And you know, it's funny, I have a client I'm working with right now who has a virtual assistant in San Francisco and we're using a lot of these same tools. We've set up a Slack channel. My client is out of the country. And um, so we've got this local uh, virtual assistant and my client, and we have a Slack channel that we share where I do, I'm the legal end of their, their business. And uh, working with her has been a real joy. And um, that has me thinking as well. You know, I, I think for my life, it would probably make sense to bring in a virtual assistant at some point. I have very low overhead. I don't, you know, I don't have permanent staff and um, I hadn't considered, you know, bringing someone in inside the country. And, um, but my problem, Katie is I'm such a control freak. It's hard for me to hand anything off, but if I would just get over it, it probably would make a difference. So I'm working on it. And thanks, thanks, Wendy, for bringing that in. And also, everybody out there, let us know, because this is a new and interesting topic, and we are going to do something with it at some point. Yeah. And Wendy, actually, we we tried to schedule a time for Wendy to come on the show, but unfortunately, schedules just couldn't link up so we could talk about this more. And Wendy was kind enough to record a much longer audio explanation of exactly what she does. Um, it's about 10 minutes long. And so we've put a link to that in the show notes that if you're interested in this topic of virtual assistance, that you can go and listen to her talk a little bit more about what she does and the types of tools that she uses and things like that. So if that's something that interests you, definitely go check out the link in the show notes to the little bit longer audio version. Um, and I know she mentioned she used something called DB Inbox. I did not realize that Dropbox now includes this feature. Jason Snell wrote about it recently in Six Colors, and so I'll put a link to that as well. Um, but you can actually create a, uh, a Dropbox folder, which which I have, David, I'll have to send you the link to this, uh, that I we're now using for um, Mac Power Users guests. So for example, Mark, when he got off the call, um, I sent him a link to the um, audio Dropbox that, that I use so that he can just upload his audio file to me. Now, I suspect Mark probably does use Dropbox, as do most of our, our guests. But if they don't, or if they maybe have a, a free Dropbox account and these audio files are quite large and they don't want to take up their you know significant amount of space in their Dropbox account by uploading a, a large Mac Power users recording, they can just upload to my Dropbox, which has plenty of space without using their space. So that, I've linked a, an article for that in the show notes as well. And it's really convenient. You can just drag and drop right on the, the window and it takes care yeah, of it and, for you. Yeah, and of course I created text expander snippet that I just call um, like MPU audio drop. And then it expands a little snippet with an explanation of here's where you can go, you know, click this link to upload your audio. All right. Well, we had another audio comment and this was from Charles about lithium batteries. Hey, David and Katie Floyd. This is Charles from North Carolina. I was calling about the recent discussion around lithium batteries and whether they need to be deep cycled. I play an electrochemist at work and so had a couple comments about it. The short answer is 
they do not need to be deep cycled. The longer answer is that they don't build up a memory in the same way that nickel cadmium or nickel metal hydride batteries do. If you're old enough to remember nickel cadmium laptop batteries or uh, NIMH, if you didn't fully discharge and recharge them, they would build up a memory effect and then gradually hold less and less charge. Lithium batteries need to be used, but they don't need to be cycled. The reason that Apple asked you to discharge your MacBook until it went to sleep and then recharge it is because it's harder to know with lithium batteries what the exact state of charge is. And so there was a mathematical model that it would update from time to time so that the you know, the system management controller or whatever would have a better guess of what the state of charge of the battery was. Now that Apple has brought the battery design in-house, my guess is that they have put some circuitry in and can make a good guess about how much charge is left in the batteries. So things like fruit juice are a good idea, but not necessary to fully discharge your iPhone or iPad or newer MacBook. Hope that helps and keep up the good work. I love our listeners. They're so smart. <laughs> that, was, that was very helpful. Yeah. Um, let's take a minute and talk about another sponsor, though. And that's our friends over at... Sorry, didn't have my page open, Katie Floyd. Um, Igloo. And, you know, my question is, why is the intranet a dirty word? You know, whenever you hear intranet, you're like, oh, intranet. You know, that's intranet with an A, not an E. And it's the problem is if you ever looked at it, you'd think, who designed this must truly hate me and everyone I know. Because if you're at work and you've got this, this intranet you share, nothing works. The user interface um, looks like it was designed in about 10 minutes and it's just really hard to use. And that's why employees often go to outside services and this causes all sorts of additional problems. Well, that's over if you want it to be. And all you have to do is go over to Igloo. Igloo is an intranet that makes you feel like a place you actually want to be. Um, they allow you to integrate services like Box and Google Drive and Dropbox into one big, easy to use, secure platform. So you can have your entire workplace working within one happy sandbox. Um, if you know terms like 256-bit encryption and single sign-on, Active Directory integrations, all that stuff is covered. Um, but just take our word for it that it's a really great intranet and you can share files with your coworkers or collaborate on you can track who's read them and with read receipts uh, it can be super useful for making critical information available to everyone and keeping everyone on the same page it's mobile friendly so you don't have to be stuck at your desk everything you know they've got ios uh, uh, a beautiful look on ios devices as well you can share status updates from your phone as you're leaving the client site and access the latest version of the file at home on your iPad, it's it's all great, and uh, and everything is mobile. So of course, Igloo is too, and it's configurable. So uh, if you want to set up and rebrand it to give it a look of your team, you can do that. Uh, they've got group spaces and role based access permissions, so you can drag and drop widget editor to figure out who gets to see what and and make the whole platform fit exactly how your teams work. Um, all of this is done in a beautiful format, and that's that's why I think Igloo has really got onto something because internet is useful. I mean, the reason why people are using Slack and all these other third-party services is because they can't get a good internet. Well, Igloo will solve that for you. So go ahead and sign up right now. You can try it for free with up to 10 people. 
And the cool thing about this is you can use it to 10 people for as long as you want. There's no like ending to the trial period. So if you've got a workplace with 10 or fewer people, just go sign up now. It's never going to cost you a dime and you're going to have a great intranet. Um, if you've got a bigger team than that, then or you want to add some more advanced features, you have to pay for it, but it'll be worth it. So so go sign up now. It's igloosoftware.com slash MPU for Mac Power Users. So that's igloosoftware.com dot com slash mpu 10 people or less it's free for life um thank you so much for igloo uh, to support the mac power users and all of relay fm great people and we really appreciate their support but really just go check out igloo it may be the solution you're looking for so a couple of mac power user lives ago lives ago there we go um we talked about using a pc and a mac together at work and uh, kobe wrote in and said talk was telling us a little bit about his workflow and, and had some suggestions. Uh, he, for example, uses a wireless K330 Logitech mouse and keyboard so that he can connect using a single device um, so that he doesn't have to see the cables. And when his MacBook Pro is connected to a monitor and the, the, and the Windows PC is connected to nothing, uh, and he uses Microsoft Remote Desktop so that when he needs to access the PC for something, he just uses the Remote Desktop client since it's inside the office network and does that. So the the Windows box is just kind of plugged into power into Ethernet and then to this um, wireless dongle so that he has a key, access to keyboard and mouse and that's it. And so this got me thinking and I actually have gotten a lot of questions and thought I would share how I finally ended up setting up my Mac PC office at my new gig, and it's worked out really well. So I um, have taken my Mac mini from my uh, old office over to my new office. And um, so I would say about 95% of the time, I am exclusively using my Mac mini always have. Um, I use it to connect to our office server. It's primarily just Word documents and email. And I love having text expander and PDF pen and 1Password and all of those other tools that I commonly use on my Mac because it just ups my productivity game. However, um, when it comes time to do things like drafting estate plans, you know, we have proprietary software that's PC only that we use for those things. So for the actual drafting of documents, I have to switch over to the PC side. And that probably happens once or twice a week. I've got to switch over to the PC for a couple of hours and and do some drafting on the PC side. So what I've done there is the the monitor that I have at my at my desk actually will accept multiple inputs. So I've got the Mac Mini plugged in with an HDMI cord, and then I've got the PC plugged in via VGA. And then you just hit a button on the the monitor, and it it cycles between the various inputs. And then I've got the pluggable USB two switch that our guest recommended on that show, and I've got my Logitech K seven fifty. Keyboard. It's a wireless keyboard from Logitech that uses their um, little infrared unifying receiver. So it will work with a Logitech keyboard and a Logitech mouse. So I've got um, the unifying receiver popped into that little pluggable USB hub. And it's very small. You can barely see it. And so that is basically the switch that I use to switch my keyboard and mouse back and forth between the Mac and the PC. And it's just a little box that I keep on my desk. And when I need to go to the Mac, I hit it. And when I need to go to the PC, I hit it again and it swaps back and forth. 
And so that's how I switch back and forth between the monitor. So it's, I've kind of like created my own KVM switch, but I don't have to because of the monitor switch and the little keyboard and mouse switch. Um, but if I'm just going to pop into the PC very quickly, then I too am using uh, remote desktop on the Mac. If I just want a PC, uh, you know, remote into the PC screen quickly. Um, or if I'm not at the office and I'm outside and I want to remote into the PC screen, then I use that as well. And it's it's worked very, very well for me, that setup. Now, if you're just using the PC a couple hours a week, have you considered installing Parallels and just virtually running uh, Windows on the on the Mac Mini? You know, I did that at my old office because the PC at my old office burned up and we just didn't replace it. And that's something that I could, I, I could, I could do it at some point, but I've got this box here and it's already set up and it's already configured. Okay. Interesting. So. And well, I think the IT people would be happier if I just kept the box there. And it makes them happy because then they can manage my PC and be happy that they're managing me. Managing the PC that gets used two hours a week. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. You're managing um, me. Aren't you happy? There you go. Funny. Um, so uh, we, uh, well, thank you for that, Katie. And we, we heard uh, also about an application for installing FOTS on iOS that I had no idea existed from Hansan. Uh, no, from Hans and Greg. Sorry. Hans. And gotcha. Yeah. Um, and Greg said that um, you actually complained that one of the limitations of iOS was that you couldn't add custom fonts that didn't ship with iOS. And apparently there's an app for that. Uh, he says, as he, he says, he says, as, gosh, I can speak today. Uh, he uses an app called any font. And a couple of years ago, he found it and it's extremely handy. It will let you install any custom font you have on your Mac uh, on iOS, either by emailing the font file to yourself or placing it in a Dropbox folder. It installs a configuration profile in your settings app. And then although the uh, installation of those profiles isn't very efficient. Um, once you've installed the font, uh, you can use it in the app and uh, it uh, you, that accesses the system fonts, including pages and words. Uh, and it was, uh, I think, only $1.99. And then Hans also sent us an audio comment with a little more information about it. Hi, Katie and Dave. My name is Hans Kohlmeier calling from South Africa. We met at the Macworld, I believe, 2013. What a blast. In the last MPU Live, Dave mentioned he has problems with fonts on his iPad. I had the same with our beautiful Nokia fonts, which displayed in horrible times Roman. I resolved it with a lovely app called Any Font by Florian Schimanke. It allows you to import any font file from your Mac or PC and then works across all your iOS apps. For $1.99, it's a steal. Thank you for an excellent podcast. I'm an avid listener and fan. Keep it up. There you go. Yeah, you know, listening to Hans, I actually remember meeting him. And uh, yeah, he sent nice a picture guy. along of, of yeah, um, he was a really nice yeah. guy. Um, man, I really miss MacWorld and meeting Mac Powers as listeners. It's a, it's a, it's a shame we don't get to do that anymore. Uh, but the, um, but they're they're out there. I was just I was at I was at the Linda headquarters and met some of our listeners there. So that's kind of cool. Um, but either way, I, I didn't know about this guys. Thanks for, for recommending it. I'm going to test it. It's, it's in my Omni focus. And one of the big problems for me is I, I like to use some custom fonts in my keynote work. And of course I like to present from the iPad and I've, for years now I've been kind of dialing back my font usage because those fonts don't transfer over to the iPad. So this may solve a huge problem for me. I'm going to report back on it in a month in the next uh, live show. 
Yeah. And I think we've kind of already transitioned a little bit into the tips section of the show. So uh, let's continue on with some listener tips. Uh, This one is from Kevin. This is Kevin Taylor from Albemarle, North Carolina, with a tip on recording lectures or talks. It's modified from something I learned from David Williams of Belmont, North Carolina. So if he's listening now, I bet he just sat up. Hi, other David. An easy way to record a talk or lecture is to use the Voice Memo app on your iPhone. Sadly, this app doesn't exist natively on the iPad, although there are alternatives. After launching the Voice Memo app, you can put your iPhone on the podium, or if you have a breast pocket on your shirt, put the iPhone in that pocket with the charging port up, which is where the microphone is. Putting the iPhone in the shirt breast pocket creates a surprisingly good recording of your voice. Afterwards, sync the recording with iTunes and drag it out of iTunes. Use Audacity or Sound Studio to trim the recording's opening and ending, especially if you left it on by accident. Also, use Audacity or Sound Studio to lower the bitrate quality of the recording, as you don't need a 44 megahertz recording of a voice. I find 12 megahertz gives a nice sounding, but uh, smaller size recording uh, file. You can then put the recording online or if you're a teacher in a course management system like Blackboard. A pro version of this workflow is to use your iPad since you may be using it for your outline and notes anyway. I use audio memos on the iPad. I then use Phone Viewer on the Mac to transfer the recordings, which is simpler than having to deal with iTunes and having the files clutter up your iTunes library. This workflow is a great way for teachers or speakers to record lectures or sessions, for students or attendees to review the material, or for students who may have missed the class. Unfortunately, it doesn't pick up student questions or participation since they aren't close to the microphone, so sometimes if there's a lot of discussion, it can be a bit one-sided to listen to. But my students find it very useful, and I hope it's helpful to others. Yeah, that, that, um, that trick about putting the thing in your pocket is really true. I, I was surprised when you know, my daughter was involved in the um, video production in high school and they came over here to shoot a video one day and all the kids would put their phones in their pockets and just run the the memos app and record their audio on their bodies as the actors because they didn't have boom mics and all the stuff you need to get good audio. And then later they'd go and post and they'd take the audio, they'd kill the audio that the camera shot and they'd, they'd use the audio from these individual mics. And it, it was really good. So that's a good tip, Kevin. Thank you for sharing. Uh, Tom in our Google Plus community also wrote in and said that he discovered a powerful new feature in iOS 9. In the native phone app, the voicemail now gives you the ability to share out the voicemail. So there's a share sheet in the voicemail app that can let you share that to other apps such as messages, mail, or Evernote. So clicking that share button gives you all of these options. And I had no idea because like Tom, I also have had instances where I would want to take that voicemail and then do something with it, save it to Dropbox or Evernote or um, you know send it to OmniFocus to remind me to do something with it. And now you can do it. Nice. Um, we, we had talked in a show recently about Apple care prices going up and Katie had made some good points about some credit cards will give you insurance on a product you buy through them. Yeah. Actually, one of our listeners, one of our listeners sit in and and told us that about an American express card, I think. Yeah. And Daniel wrote in and said, Wells Fargo credit card also has uh, phone protection. 
And he says, with Katie's recent blog post, uh, he wanted to follow up. If you have a Wells Fargo bank credit card and he got his just for this purpose and pay your monthly phone bill on it, you have what is a pretty good cell phone insurance. It covers damage up to $600 minus a $25 deductible on the first six devices listed on your bill, including iPads only if they're on the cellular plan. So up to two total claims per year. And this covers accidental damage and theft, which Apple Care does not. And he says this tip saved him a bunch of money and he hopes we can share it with the listeners and we'll put a link in the show notes to the Wells Fargo feature. And guess what? I think I'm going to get a Wells Fargo card to pay my bill with because. Now you said that last month when we talked about the American Express card too. Yeah, but I, I haven't done that yet. But with the Wells Fargo, I ha- actually have a small account with Wells Fargo already. So it's the uh, it seems to me like I'm more likely to pull this one off. So all you have to yeah. do is pay your monthly bill with it and you get it's not even you have to buy the device with it. Just pay your monthly well, sell bill. And and again, I'm going to throw the caveat there. We put the link in the show notes with more information on Wells Fargo's page. Please read that yourself. Read the fine print. I, I generally am not an advocate of getting a bunch of credit cards for their benefits and their points because I find that there are a lot of gotchas in those types of things. But, um, you know, we, we've had listeners who've wrote in and spoken highly about these. So, um, you know, check them out and, and see if it's worthwhile. And the blog post that he's mentioning is, you know, as as the cost of Apple Care Plus has increased and the service fee has gone up, I, you know, I've kind of questioned the value of buying Apple Care Plus on some of these products. I, I think it's one thing if if you're very accident prone or if, if you're giving these devices to kids, but I, and, you know, I should knock on wood or something, have never had a claim under Apple Care Plus for accidental damage on one of my iPhones. The um, the only types of issues I've had have all been issues that have occurred in the first year and would have normally been covered under the regular warranty. And so if I kind of go back and look at all of the money that I've spent on Apple Care Plus over the years, I, I probably could have bought another iPhone or two by now um, when you look at what the replacement cost is for an out-of-warranty phone. So I, I think people just need to be aware of that. Yeah, uh, we heard from Steve, uh, and he has a tale of a stolen Mac, and he says, thanks for the backup advice and and the way we always bang on about redundancy, because uh, while his family was at a recent Sparks family haunt, I guess that would be Disneyland, we had some unwelcome visitors in their house, and one of the casualties was his wife's MacBook Air, and since she kept her time machine drive plugged in, the drive wandered away with the laptop. You know, that's something and, you that know, we always we, worry we about. We talk about that, but people don't believe that that really happens. And I put this in the show notes because here's Steve writing in saying that, yes, this happened. And he says, if that was our only backup, we would have been screwed. But luckily, we also had two more backups in the form of both local and cloud crash plan. And the local backup was on a network attached drive located in one room that the uh, crooks didn't ransack. And uh, he says, while we haven't recovered the Mac, um, once the new one was was purchased, they were easily able to restore everything through CrashPlan, albeit not as easily as if they had had the time machine to work with. And he also had both the Mac and external drive encrypted with FileVault, so they're pretty confident about their data security. And uh, one other feature that they were able to use was, um, I guess they found out about it while they were at Disneyland, and, and they used Find My Mac. So while waiting in line for Tower of Terror, they're able to get a screenshot of the current location and send it to the police. And then they remotely locked and erased the computer. And um, he says, <laughs> it makes a comment, he wishes that it had a self-destruct button as well, like Mission Impossible. But 
at least he was able to delete his data. So, uh, yeah. uh, you know, that that's a true thing, a fire, a theft. There, there's a lot of reasons why a single backup, especially when attached to the computer or in the same room as the computer, is not a backup because it's going to go with the machine. All right. Well, um, I think we'll we'll wrap it up a little bit with um, tech that we're playing with. But before we do, I do want to talk about our last sponsor today, and that is the Omni Group. And I want to talk a little bit about Omni Outliner because I've been an avid user of Omni Outliner, and even more so recently, I've actually been using Omni Outliner quite a bit on my um, iPad and on my Mac in conjunction with each other. And you can use Omni Outliner to store and collect all sorts of information for anything you want. Um, in fact, the minute that you launch Omni Outliner to create a new document, um, they're going to give you a bunch of built-in themes to choose from to help you get started. Um, whether you're writing a screenplay or whether you're taking notes for a class, you can probably find something that you can work with and get started with. Um, you can use it for any kind of tasks, you know, speech writing, note taking, creating lists, anything that you want. And you can quickly add structure to your outline and beef it up um, and expand or collapse and wherever you want to. So I like to take notes quickly and then go back in and, and add more detail as I as I go back in through a topic matter. And it's very accessible with keyboard shortcuts. I hardly ever have to use my mouse. And then you can um, supplement your outline by adding even more information, pulling in attachments and recordings, PDFs. Sometimes I'll even take pictures of uh, information with my iPhone and then add those those documents um, right directly into my outline. So I have everything collected together in one document. Um, you can even record audio while you take notes with an Omni Outliner and reference that in the future. Um, and then you can share your outlines out by exporting them into a variety of formats. And then like I alluded to earlier, all of this information will sync across multiple devices on any Mac or iPad using OmniPresence. And that's their free, reliable, and open source tool that you can use for syncing uh, Omni's various documents. And your files will always be intact and available. Um, and they'll even be waiting for you because it supports background app refresh starting with iOS 7. So the pro version of Omni Outliner brings some additional features like additional export formats and Apple script support and even more style and control. So if you're someone like me who your mind just works in an outline and you'd like to be able to outline, um, go check out Omni Outliner. You can even try it before you buy it. Um, Check it out over at theomnigroup.com. Try it first. And then once you buy it, you've got a free 30-day money-back guarantee. Um, so thanks to, so much to, to, for the Omni Group for supporting our show. And uh, go check out Omni Outliner and all their great products. All right. So let's talk about some tech that we're playing with. And um, I, I'll start. Uh, I just, uh, you know, t Twitter applications are kind of a thing that we're always like looking for the newest and greatest. And for years I used TweetBot. Uh, however, their their iPad app looked pretty terrible uh, for a long time. They never really updated for iOS 7. And a few months ago, I switched over to the Twitter application, which is good. And there's some features in there that I like, but it didn't it didn't feel as easy to use or um, as friendly as TweetBot did. And just recently, the gang over at, um, what's the name of the company? I think it's Tweet, I think they Tap call bots. it Tweet, TapBots, released Twi TweetBot number four for Twitter. And this is a paid uh, purchase. You know, it's a new purchase of the application. Uh, I don't begrudge them that. You got to make money if you're going to sell this stuff. And I went ahead and bought it. It's $5 right now on sale as we record this. Hopefully the sale will still be in place when the show releases. And it's universal. It looks good on the iPad and the iPhone. And uh, switching back to it over the last couple of days, I, had, I realized how much I missed it. Uh, I really like TweetBot. Um, I'm really happy that it looks nice on the iPad again. 
And um, I would re recommend trying this out if you haven't and you like to use Twitter. They, they do a really good job over there. I was so, so happy when TweetBot 4 came out because I'd been using the old, old iPad app and it was really starting to look aged. Yeah, I couldn't take it anymore. Yeah, I, I turned it off. Anyway, um, but uh, your your tech you're playing with, I think, is almost a more interesting discussion because this is something we've been talking about offline for a few weeks now. Yeah, so um, I have been curious, as, as we've talked about and we've alluded to on a couple of Mac Power Users episodes, I have been curious about a bigger iPad for a while and kind of what really prompted, a couple of things have prompted this discussion. You know, one is I've been using my iPad a little bit more for schoolwork and particularly with, with PDFs and, and viewing PDFs, having a little bit larger area to work with, you know, might've been a, a, a good thing. And so I wanted to experiment a little bit with that. And then, you know, lately I've been having these, this trouble with my MacBook Air and I've had several instances where I've had to send it in for service and I've been without my MacBook Air for, you know, three, four, five days at a time. And I've had to use my iPad as my primary computer and especially taking notes on my iPad, taking my computer, my iPad as my computer with an external keyboard into class and really thinking that while the iPad mini was, was working for me, would this be better with a bigger screen? Well, you know, I've always wanted to, to try the iPad Air 2, and, and this is my opportunity to do that. So it arrived about, about two weeks ago, and I've been using it almost exclusively as, as my iPad for about two weeks now. And it's, it's been interesting. You know, there are definitely some pros and, and some cons for, for using the new, the new iPad 2. Um, How do you like of, the uh, the Touch ID? Is that cool? Oh, okay. So so let's talk about the pros. The I love 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 Touch ID. Uh, in fact, it, that is that is one of the things that I don't know that I can. I don't know how I lived without Touch ID on my iPad Mini because you just use it so many places now, um, and especially as more apps are building in support for it. So t Touch ID is is huge on the iPad. Um, and yeah, every, then, every time I have to type in my, cause I have the iPad one, every time I have to type in my password in one password, I think about that. I wish I had a touch ID. Yeah. Yeah. That's huge. So the, the other thing that is great, um, the, the iPad air two is, uh, it's a little bit faster. It's a good bit faster than my, um, iPad mini. Now I had an iPad mini too, so it was no slouch. I don't really use graphics intensive or processor intensive apps. So that's probably not as big of a deal for me having the faster speed, but also having slide over and split screen apps. Now my iPad mini two will do slide over um, app support, but it won't do split screen app support. And I know the iPad mini four will, but um, the mini two will not do split screen apps. And I, I got to say, that's, that's nice. I've had a couple of instances where, you know, I've been on a web page on, on one end and I've had, you know, another document, you know, maybe the notes app or maybe Slack open on another and just had two things going side by side, or I've had the reminders app open and, and a web page open on another side and, and being able to work side by side. So that's been really nice. And at the, one of the things that has kind of been disappointing to me is disappointing personally is I'm finding that the iPad air is a lot easier to read because everything is just a little bit bigger. Yeah. Well, Katie, welcome to the club. I know. No, and but I'm you're just, still in your twenties, aren't you? I mean, I am not. No, no, I'm not in my twenties, David. I, I thought you were 12 no. or something. Yes. I'm 12. That's how old I am. Yeah. 
I, I wish I was still. So, in my so you love the iPad Air too, like me. You're you're a big iPad user now. Well, but there's some downsides to it. So, um, it's 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 difficult to hold. It's a little bit clunkier to hold. It's it's harder to use, if not impossible to use single handedly. The iPad Air too. So I was. Can, can you I, use I, the iPad Air? Can you use the iPad Air Mini one handed? Kind of. I mean, well, you can certainly hold it in one hand and then and then you know motion or type with another. So here's an example. Yesterday, I was um, I, I was participating in a community event at the courthouse that I was helping to organize, and I had all of the information in Google Docs, and so I. Um, I wanted to take my iPad to the courthouse with me because I, I needed to look something up. I wanted to be able to do that. So I was walking around quite a bit, checking people in, pulling up information on the Google Docs. And I decided I, I had to go grab an iPad. They were both sitting on my nightstand. And I had to grab an iPad to take with me to take to the courthouse. And I decided to grab the mini for two reasons. One is I wasn't taking my briefcase. I was just taking my purse. And the mini would fit in my purse and the Air 2 would not. And the other is I was walking around all day with this iPad in my hand, um, you know, holding it and then, you know, checking people off or swiping through things with the other. And the mini was just so comfortable for that. And I don't know that the iPad Air 2 would have been. So, so is that I don't when know. you're going to become a, a two iPad person? You're going to just use both of them? Ah, see, that just seems so excessive. I don't know that I want to be a two iPad person. And so now, now I've started looking at, since this experience last night, now I've kind of started looking at the iPad mini four to look, cause that yeah. would kind of, maybe, maybe that would be the best of both worlds, but I really like the iPad air too. I, I I'm going to have to clearly give this more thought. First I of thought all, it, uh, I thought it would be a clear cut decision and it's not. First of all, I, I give you permission to have two iPads, Katie. I, I can't I know do that. You are that, a frugal that is, person. That is extravagant. I know you're a frugal what, person. One of these iPads I, is going away. I think you you should be. It's okay to have two. Tim Cook would be happy, um, you know. Uh, and if if you truly have use for both, um, you could you could go ahead and keep both. That's okay. Uh, but uh, the, the second point about uh, the iPad Mini, it makes a lot of sense for you because I know number one, you have younger eyes than I. Number two, you carry a purse, and so you have an iPad with you nearly all times, probably with that iPad Mini, right? Because it will fit in my purse and the bigger one won't. And, I guess I could get iPad, a bigger purse. And the iPad Air 2 will not. So that right. to you is a big difference. So for me, I don't I don't carry a, what do they call them? Man, man pouch, man bag. A, immerse. To, immerse. I don't carry one of those. So either way, I'm not going to be carrying an iPad unless I've got it in my briefcase, my bag, or in my hand or whatever. And um, I don't have pants with super big pockets. So I'm not going to get an iPad in it. Um, I So I tried the iPad mini when it first came out. I got one. And that was before they were retina screen and I did not like it. I, it was too small to read. And, and I think a part of it comes down to what do you do with an iPad? And a big part of what I do with an iPad is I, I read and annotate PDFs and I, um, I read sheet music and there, there's just things I do that a uh, bigger screen makes more sense for me. So uh, very quickly I realized it wasn't my thing. I gave it to my wife who loves it and carries it in her purse. And since then she's got, we've, you know, traded up and she got a, uh, a new iPad mini that has a retina screen a few years ago. So, um, so I, I can appreciate people wanting these small ones, but for me, bigger is better. And I really think I've got the iPad air one. I'm, I'm probably going to sell it and get one of these iPad pro things because I even want it bigger, but it's just kind of interesting hearing you describe it. It sounds to me like for working with it, you prefer the bigger screen 
but for convenience, you prefer the smaller one. Yeah. Um, I will tell you the one thing that, that threw me is they really, you know, they talked so little about the iPad mini four at the Apple event. It was like 30 seconds. Oh, by the way, we have a new iPad mini four. Here it is. Um, and so I, I went online and I, I read some of the reviews about it and I went and looked at it on the Apple store. I really like the, um, Apple leather case, not the smart cover, but the smart case for the iPad, which, you know, is front and back protection. And that case is not compatible with the iPad mini four, nor do they make one for the iPad mini four, because apparently the iPad mini four is a little bit thinner and a little bit taller than the iPad mini one, two, and three. Okay, so uh, they making make, your deci- making your decision based on whether or not a specific case is available sounds a I, little nutty to me. It does, but I might be doing that. Instead, they make some some silicone type back case that if you buy the silicone back case and the smart cover for it, it, it you know it, it's even more expensive. It's ridiculous. I don't know. So if anybody knows if about an iPad the- iPad Mini Four leather smart case. That's just like the Apple one, but I guess not because Apple doesn't make it. Let me know. Yeah, if only there was a third party market that would make iPad cases. Well, I'm sure there if is, only. but there's just, but they, you know, that's their brand <laughs> know, new I'm now sure there because is too. they changed well, the, I, the design. I, I, so I think you should just keep them both. You got a good deal on the iPad Air. T- I got a great deal on it. Yes. I just, I think you should just keep them both and, and use it for a year. Consider it an experiment. And then let's find out what really works for you. Because you know, two weeks probably isn't enough time. Like when you're yeah. sitting in class, I think that iPad Air 2 would really be nice. And yeah, no, I'm definitely, I'm going to give it, I'm going to give it, uh, I think a month or so before I decide to do anything. So I definitely right. need more time to play with them. So we've Bated gone on breath. about that long enough. Bated breath. I have, I, I'm going to wake up every day, Sam, I wonder what. what what's the status? Katie's what's the status of the iPad, iPad today? <laughs> All right. Well, uh, listen, we made it through another live show. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, especially for the the comments and the live comments and the recordings you sent in. Uh, if you've got something interesting to share with us, then one of the recent shows we've done or something that uh, sparked your interest from today's show, go ahead, write us in or, or, or record a little uh, thing for us. Keep the pitch under two minutes, please, because we got to we got to get the show rolling. Um we're going to be recording our next show the first Saturday of next month, just like we do every month. We'll hopefully see you there. Thanks to everyone in the chat room for coming in. I always enjoy seeing the live chat during the show. I wish I could engage in it more, but I'm not very good at uh, multitasking. Uh, thanks to our sponsors, 1Password, Omni, Fujitsu, and Igloo. And uh, you can find out more about us over at relay.fm slash MPU. On Twitter, we are at MacPowerUsers. Katie's at Katie Floyd. I'm at MacSparky. Uh, send that email into feedback at Mac Power Users. Did I miss anything, Katie? I think you got it all. Great. We will see you all with the next show. Bye.